a growing disenchantment spurred on by a functional failure of my Christian school with my faith had left me a bit unanchored in life. Back in public schools, I had a few clumsy attempts to reconnect with public school friends that had found new friends and new cliques. I made friends with an older guy who had no problem buying liquor for me, and I started drinking. A lot. And I don't mean a lot for a high schooler. I meant I drank like it was my job and became a functional alcoholic before I graduated high school. I remember the rare party that I had managed to get invited to and took out a fifth of Bacardi 151, and when I presented it as a gift to all attendees to enjoy, I was treated like I had shown up with black tar heroin. I guess beer was fine, but take it easy, Stephen. When I was in elementary school, the friendly dare officer came in to tell us about the dangers of street drugs, and it's now well known that the returns on the dare program on drug consumption has been trivial at best. I would say for me, personally, it actually gave me a bad turn. Just like abstinence-only scare tactics, sex education is now well documented to actually increase teenage pregnancy. The D.A.R.E. program had a similar effect on me. First, when it was time for me to get my wisdom teeth out, the oral surgeon gave me, a teenager, two weeks' worth of an opioid-based painkiller and had no problem giving me a refill when I came back to his office the same week for more. Dare assured me that the doctor and the man behind the counter at the pharmacy had my best interests at heart, and those were the okay drugs. How I managed to not be a statistic of that part of the country, I couldn't tell you. That addiction hit me hard. It worked in confluence with another logic that I'll tell you about. In one of those rare parties that I attended, one that was a bit more wild than the other one I mentioned, I saw for the first time people smoking marijuana. And I'll tell you, I was shocked, and certain that all of the bad things the D.A.R.E. officer had warned me about would happen. We would die, we would be pregnant, we would go to jail, our very lives would crumble around us. But the people I saw smoking, they were my friends. They were good students, and on Monday, they were back to school, getting good grades, no worse for wear. After witnessing this a few times and seeing no ill effect, I partook and managed to not get anyone pregnant, go to jail, or die. I was still in school, and I didn't get fired from my job. If D.A.R.E., which had lumped cocaine and heroin and meth into the same group as marijuana, had lied to me about a bit of pots, what else had they lied to me about? And I set out to find out. A few years later, I sobered up and realized that all of the drinking and drugs had kept my life in a sort of stasis. I got my mind straight and swore off all of it and stayed that way for about a decade. During that time, I did involve myself with a church after-school program in which I mainly played hacky sack with the kids and tried to keep some law and order. The program was run by a young, enthusiastic pastor, fresh out of Methodist seminary. He was also the only person that commented on my nearly perpetual drunkenness and took a gentle approach to pointing out the problems with my self-medication. There was a girl there that came every week, then dropped off our radar. I found out later her mom had gotten sick. She turned to prostitution to make money for the family and the medical bills, and that came with drugs. And somewhere in that life she met the wrong man, and he murdered her and left her face down in a creek under a bridge. When I quit the drinking and drugs, I found myself in a lonely place. I had alienated myself from church friends who had ignored my self-destructive behavior, and my social group wasn't interested in socializing with the sober guy. 
A few years later, I had a long-term girlfriend who broke up with me, and I was feeling compelled to drink out of the crushing depression that came from another season of feeling rudderless. I decided to go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings to shore up against my own compulsions to drink. AA claims that you must believe in an unnamed higher power to get sober. They're not kidding anyone. That's the Christian God, and everyone knows it. But uh, I have to say, if you were to ask me to name the top ten religious services that I've been to in my life, at least eight of them would have been AA meetings. I've been to countless Sunday morning services where you know half of the people there are in deep pain that comes from the real problems that come with reality. But nobody dares show that they need help, and call me cynical if you must, but I'd bet the other half wouldn't have interest in making an actual human connection and meeting someone where they are to give them the help that uh, as their Savior has asked them to do. AA, on the other hand, everyone knows they're deeply flawed, broken people. The smiles are genuine. The desire to help and support is in the fabric of those groups. I will also tell you that the less you say, the worse other people think it is for you. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's a line from the Palinic book Fight Club and the movie based on it. And it's true. Everyone else there had the dramatic story, their testimony, if you will. They woke up in jail two states away and didn't know how they got there. They got divorced and their kids won't talk to them. They crashed their car and killed an innocent person. I didn't have a story like that. I'll tell you the moment that I decided that there was a problem with me. I was watching The Simpsons with some friends. We were drinking, and there was a scene where one of the characters announced that every group of drinking buddies needs one real alcoholic to make their alcoholism look less raging. We all laughed, and I said, We don't have someone like that. And then silence. Oh, it's me. I'm, I'm that person. I got my head on straight. I got my act together. I got a better job. I moved to a better living condition. I spent more time outdoors, and I went to revive my faith. In the bigger city that I had moved to, I got myself involved with a vineyard church. They've got large corporate worship and really push for people to join smaller groups. If I remember correctly, they call them cell groups, which I thought was pretty cool. I recall my sermons having an ask in them. Look inside yourself. Evaluate your thinking, which is refreshing. At that time, though, I did find myself deeply interested in two thinkers— First, Alan Watts, who was a 20th century, well, theologian doesn't seem to fit, even though he spoke at tremendous lengths on a variety of religions. I think philosopher would fit better. I read his book, The Way of Zen, which I felt made me a better Christian. The book is on the origins, history, and tenets of Zen Buddhism. There are some Zen practitioners that have criticized his work as not valid, and I can't speak to that, but that book opened my eyes to some of the themes that the best of Christianity had tried to express itself to me, and the worst of American Christianity had blocked me from. Alan Watts' explanation of the Tao and how the Chinese people understand it made perfect sense to me, as how a divine force could work and exist and not be stuffed into the patriarchal molds of Christian insists on putting God into. Watts wrote at length about the patriarchs of Zen who challenged their students to reconsider themselves and the reality at an incredibly fundamental level. These were the sort of mentors that I had wanted and were absent from the modern church. Jesus had asked his followers to go forward and make disciples, but I had only been a congregant. No teachers who had time to explain the quiet difficulties of life in the lens of a loving God 
only those who would paint with a broad brush and demand that none of it be questioned. I decided I must be the change in the world and become more vocal about being a Christian and how I didn't have all the answers. In fact, I didn't have many at all. But I would be there for you, and I'd hold my judgment unless you asked for it. Alan Watts' book on an entirely different religion had done more to revitalize my interest in Christianity than most of a lifetime of church attendance. Following my interest in Alan Watts, a Christian author and pastor out of a church in Michigan had begun getting some heat from uh, particularly evangelicals, but also some mainline Protestants as well. It seems rare that a person will get so many other Christians to claim that they're heretical in modern America, so I checked him out. He had published a book called Love Wins, and the real hot-button item that got him in some trouble with some circles is asking if it's beyond God's ability to pursue this alleged desire for a personal relationship with every human being beyond the point of their death. He also questioned the biblical evidence for a place of eternal punishment. The problem is, is that this smacks of universalism. A good number of Christians just can't stand the idea that everyone might be able to get into heaven. Why bother burning a couple hours every Sunday morning for your whole life if you could have slept in and still gotten to heaven? Mr. Rob Bell's two points were ones that set me on another area of study. The point about questioning the biblical fundamentals for the idea of hell is one. Despite modern evangelicals focusing on a fire insurance style of salvation, the Bible spends very little time on talking about the afterlife, let alone eternal damnation. In fact, Jesus' reference to hell really do seem to, prior to translation into English, appear to be a literal reference to a garbage dump, not an eternal spiritual death. What else in this collection of 66 texts might I have to learn for myself? The second point was the idea that Christians had put God into a small box. Just because the attributes of the divine are not clearly spelled out in some old book doesn't mean those attributes don't exist. Furthermore, the idea that a finite human mind could fully understand the limits of a limitless entity is laughable. Alan Watts' discussion on the ideas of the Tao stuck with me as I thought about this. Atheists like to ask the trap of a question. Can God make a stone so large that he can't move it? Understanding the divine, as Mr. Watts explains the Tao, makes that question nonsensical. God wouldn't make a rock so large that God couldn't move it because that's not what God does. Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, actually went into high demand and didn't become available to me at my local library for some time. However, I was able to get some of his earlier books on CD and listened to the audiobooks on my long drives to work. His work, Sex God, with its provocative title, was my favorite, in which Rob Bell describes God's relationship with humanity in romantic terms. If you check out any of Rob Bell's works, I'd recommend getting them in audiobook format. He is a terrific speaker. His works frequently raise questions that are left unanswered, which might leave a person feeling unfulfilled, but at that point in my life, I needed more questions, less answers. As of this moment, Mr. Bell has a podcast that you can subscribe to, and it comes and goes from my podcatcher. In the context of the pulpit and his audiobooks, I like him more. Rob Bell, unstructured, somehow is challenging to follow. On a particular episode of his podcast recently, he talked about how evangelical Christians are willing to let their spiritual leader, probably their pastor, gather their wisdom for them. That stuck with me. Gather wisdom for them. The other option is looking within and without to find your own. 
Instead of kneeling at the feet of your guru, you take it upon your own shoulders to find your own truths. That stuck with me. Now, my first job after college, they were in kitchens. Kitchens are a great place to see people as their best and as their worst, and they attract a diverse crowd of people. Anyone with a tolerance for heat, pain, and fast-paced work can work there. And so can desperate people who live on the edge of financial ruin. There was one person that I worked with. I'll call him Marcus. He was a server. He was a few years older than me, and he was gay. I'm guessing that he is still breathing, so I'm guessing he's still gay. But he held just enough flamboyance that there wasn't any guesswork that went into whether or not he was gay. This was the first time that I was aware of that I had met a gay person. There were two guys in my high school who were gay, one who I never met and another one who was a friend who came out after I left high school and we drifted apart, as people do after high school. Marcus was loud and proud. This didn't fit with the education of my childhood. Gay people were secret perverts who were ashamed of their perversion. If you grew up in a big city, this might be something difficult to understand. But when you grow up in a not-that-big-of-a-city, you can have this kind of thought in your head for a long time. Marcus flirted with guys in the kitchen, and nobody seemed to mind. My co-workers would shrug it off as a fun game. No harm, no foul. I'm guessing that some of them would have behaved violently had Marcus been more than flirty with them, and that might have included me, to be honest. But otherwise, it was all a joke, just a game. One day, Marcus was at work, upset. Something had happened. It turned out that one of his relatives had said something hateful to him about being gay. As a person brought up to believe that homosexuality was a choice that perverts made, I asked him, If being gay is causing you trouble with your family, why don't you just stop being gay? Upset Marcus still managed to handle such an ignorant question with a measure of grace. He saw the sincere look on my face that only someone who couldn't even begin to understand the fundamentals of his being could hold. He drew himself up and asked me, Do you think I chose to be ostracized by my family and my friends? Do you think that I could just choose to stop being gay and make my life easier? If I could, I would. Why would anyone choose to be gay where half of the world hates them? And he left me to ponder those questions. It did truly never occurred to me why, if being gay was a choice, would gay people not just stop having homosexual sex to avoid their own persecutions? And that began the complete unraveling of every bit of homophobic education that had been lodged in my mind up until that point. If two people of the same sex want to have sex with each other, how, in this land of individual liberty, could that be a problem for me or my community or anyone? It wasn't for me, but neither is skydiving. In a later job, I'd wind up working in a location that more than a third of the employees were some kind of not straight, and a sprinkling of them were polyamorous people, which really rounded off the rest of the hard edges on my prejudices that I had been taught to have. If integration helps with racism, it does with homophobia as well. Over the next few years, I had good seasons and bad seasons. I'd return to Rob Bell and Alan Watts from time to time, I'd consider the divine and wonder about all of the different elements that make up human existence and ponder the eternal why. I was given an early print of Anne Rand's Atlas Shrugged by a rather liberal friend, and I read the whole book and explored the points made in the book about only accepting reality through the filter of reason, and also took in some of the bits about being a right asshole to people around you, which 
didn't do me any favors socially, and it also caused quite a bit of dissonance with the best parts of what Christianity expected of me. If the poor are poor because of their own moral shortcomings, then allows me to abdicate my responsibility of caring for the poor, right? If you haven't read the book, I'll save you the lengthy read and let you know that it's not a bad story, but Ms. Rand could have done with a judicious editor who would have reined in her penchant for her monologue. There is a 50-page monologue in the middle of the book that sums up all of the book's philosophical points and numbs the brain while it's at it. But the points that are raised are that everyone is responsible for themselves and paints a beautiful picture of capitalism in which everyone is equal and every individual's ability to produce and execute contracts as equals yields a utopia. However, anyone with half a brain can see that American capitalism, or might I say feudalism, has fallen quite short of the ideals that Adam Smith wrote about his The Wealth of Nations, or what Ayn Rand had claimed in her books. Capitalism is just as much of a success on paper as communism, if you ask me. In my research into Ayn Rand's philosophy, Objectivism, I did come across a group of people who found an intersection between their scriptures and Rand's writings. Satanists, specifically the Church of Satan. This would be my first interaction with modern Satanism, and I was intrigued to find out that the Church of Satan didn't even believe in a literal being called Satan, and seemed to eschew any external spirituality at all. I did find plenty of websites of Christian conspiracy theorists that claim that this was an esoteric front. The Church of Satan would tell you to embrace the demands of id and use it to pursue the best beast you could, but once it had you, it'd graduate you into the true Church of Satan, which is actually devil worship and child sacrifice and blood orgies and all of that. I decided to be my own judge and picked up a copy of LaVey's The Satanic Bible. I immediately felt the overlaps between objectivism and the ideas put forth in LaVey's book, and I also did find his thoughts on personal development of personal goals to be thought-provoking and inspirational. I did find the book lacked a certain feeling of coherence, and also I couldn't quite figure out if the Church of Satan believed in the supernatural some, or just a little, or a lot, or none, as it discarded the idea of literal Satan, but also had prescriptions for magic. Now, both Objectivism and The Church of Satan were interesting reads, but they didn't stick in my heart as something I wanted to pursue any further, and both dwindled out of my consciousness. The elevation of the self to no ends beyond the self seemed short-sighted. As a Christian who wanted to better the world around himself, the idea that selflessness would be a moral failing just didn't work for me. I did give a decent amount of time into reading about modern magicians. The adjacent texts from the Satanic Bible took me to John Dee and then forward into the future to Lester Crowley, the Ordo Templi Orientis, and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. I'll discuss this one briefly since I only read with great curiosity but didn't quite find enough interest to try and practice any sort of magical rituals. Coming from a background in which not only is God real, but his army of angels and host of demons and other sundry spirits, why wouldn't people be able to tap into some of these supernatural powers and change the world around them through arcane means? But where was the evidence that this could happen? Legend after legend, but if a magician would be able to change lead into gold or bring spirits into this world to do their bidding, where was their destruction? Where was their creation? What problems had been created or solved by their ancient meddling in the realm of spirits? 
These questions would come up again much later in a different area of thought. More time passed, and my Christianity evolved. I loosened my grip on it. Taking the religion too seriously had drained the joy out of what it should have brought me. If a religion is nothing but a set of rules against certain actions, and they must be followed precisely, what fun is there in life? Where is the room for love? My instruction to never question the correctness of the American Republican Party eroded with that as well. Being a Christian and being a Republican were not the same thing, and I witnessed my family and my friends make what I saw as the decision to be a Republican or an American over being a Christian. When the two came into conflict, they'd choose the GOP over Christ but feel no conflict in it. The abortion issue is of primary note. It was our obligation to make sure that all the babies made it into the world unscathed by the murderous machinations of their mothers. But once breathing the same air as us, we were liberated from any obligation for the well-being of that child, and certainly from the well-being of the mother. And all of that certainly compounded with evangelical Christians claiming that the United States' current president is a positive instrument of God. The hypocrisy of this runs so deep that any way that I could think to make and sense of this other than the wholesale self-indoctrination that the GOP is more important to the success of Christianity than Christ's own words. I wanted to find things to do, ways to benefit the world around me and do the best of the things that I had been asked to do, despite the few examples that I had been shown of others actually doing those things. I gave blood, platelets, and plasma later, and this was an important sacrament for me. If I was to behave in a way that would emulate Christ-like behavior, could there be no more benevolent way than the literal giving of blood to benefit a stranger? I volunteered at a prison, and I taught algebra and English to the incarcerated. I raised funds for and worked in food pantries to feed the hungry I donated clothing for the poor. I didn't spend a lot of time or resources on these things, but I felt that I was doing more than the people who I'd attended church with. They'd kick a few bucks into the offering plate, which seemed to go to nothing other than paying the church's rent or the building fund? Is the purpose of the church to have four walls for people to meet every Sunday morning, or is it to serve the community? I feel the ask was the second, but in practice it was the first. Christianity was feeling empty, as I had so few role models to show off the terrific work that they were doing and executing the things that Jesus, in no uncertain terms, had asked his followers to do.